Today is March 23rd. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Um, our guest today is Gemma Cassidisus smith Did I say that right? Yes. She is Associate Professor of Biology at Kent State. Right now, her lab is focusing on how age-related hormonal changes contribute to memory dysfunction and development of Alzheimer's disease, with specific emphasis on gonadotropins and metabolic hormones, such as leptin and amylin, which mm-hmm. is what we're going to talk about today. Um, hi, Gemma. Hi. And around the room, we've got our um, dean, George Perry. Hello. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. As usual. We've got two new faculty, which is kind of exciting. We've got Asif Maruf. Hello. And we've got a friend of the pod, Hyungan Lee, who actually is now, we're really happy to welcome you as faculty here in Hello. biology, Hyungan uh, <laughs> Lee. Um, okay. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I just want to start this off by saying something about the interplay between, um, I guess, benign aging, meaning advanced age with no cognitive decline, uh, with no dementia of any sort, then age-related dementia, and then what I guess we think of as pathologically defined Alzheimer's disease. So is there anything to suggest, or do we think about these as, as lying on a continuum, or are these just like different trajectories that sort of go off in their own directions with different molecular markers? Are there switches that kind of turn one thing into the other? Like, how are we thinking about this in the, in the, sen- in the senescence? I never know how to say that word, senescence yes. field. Is- well, I think that you're going to have opinions for all of them, right? So some people think that Alzheimer's disease is an extension of aging. I don't necessarily <coughs> ascribe to that. But there's two... There's two very defined populations. One is early onset Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, all of those patients have a mutation either in APP or in presenilin, and they will develop Alzheimer's disease. It's a genetic disorder, and you get it really early on. Then you have another population, which is the aged population, and within that, then the story becomes murkier, right? So there are some factors that it's idiopathic Alzheimer's disease. There are some factors that make you more prone to developing it, like your APOE uh, genotype or, you know, different molecular markers that or genetic markers that we still don't know. A lot of them we don't even know. Um, well, it's like the TREM2, trem TREM, you know. So there's different inflammatory... Huh? What is the yeah, molecular marker that we don't know? Well, there's, there's different genetic genes that are now, you know, as we're doing you know, big genetic studies and association studies, um, we're finding these associations that we previously didn't know. And so one one more recent one is trend 2 right? Mm-hmm. right? So it means so, that it's associated, but we don't know. Yeah, so then there's it. been, you know, there's now there's nascent research. So you can, there's nascent research into trying to understand what the role of trend 2 is, right? Um, so there's a lot that we don't know still. There's, and then there's, you know, and then there's two distinct populations, even within aging. There's people that are 85, 90, and are in perfect health and cognitively beautiful. And then there's people that are, you know, 85, 90, and are on probably on their way. And so that may be genetically different as well. So, so the, the, I guess what I'm wondering about is that what we have as readout is... Mm-hmm basically cognitive decline, right? And I, I'm sure there are lots of different gradations of, right. of cognitive de- decline. Do, so there's age-related, yeah, there's age-related cognitive decline, and then there's Alzheimer's, and the, the phenotype, if you want to call it, right. the clinical phenotype is quite different. 
So age-related cognitive decline does not look like Alzheimer's. But there's a population that sort of overlaps clinically where they kind of look like Alzheimer's. What is the the look that distinguishes Alzheimer's? The clinical look that distinguishes? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I know the clinical, more or less the clinical features, but there's a series of neuropsychological tests that they can do and they can identify it in the clinic pretty clearly in terms of the tests that do exactly... I, I can't tell you right now. i got to go back to my book. But, but there is a phenotypic difference yeah. between age-related cognitive decline and Yeah, so the, the difference, you know, in a lay, you know, if you want to discuss it in a lay way, is like, right, if you forget your keys and you don't remember when you where you put them, and then, you know, they tell you, oh, you left it in the kitchen, you're like, oh, okay, right? But if you find your keys in the fridge, or you never even remember that you had keys, then that's a bigger problem. Right, so that's sort of that. right. That's sort of like as long as you can recall back information, you're okay. When you know, when you can't recall and you actually don't remember that event even happening, then you're talking about something completely different. But within that, you know, there's different types of learning and memory disorders as well. So then, obviously, there's there's other tests that have to be done to be more or less sure that what you have is dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. But it's not only memory that is affected in Alzheimer's. Dementia is more than just loss of memory. Right. So this idea of, of a final common path is, is absolutely just not... I, I yeah. don't personally agree with it, um, but some, some people do, uh, do ascribe to the fact that that's just, you know, if we all get old enough, we're all going to get Alzheimer's disease because that's a progression of aging, right? And, but So in terms of clinical markers, you and Hyungan actually have some really interesting data on plasma levels of amylin, which mm-hmm. is a hormone that it's a metabolic hormone. Is that has that gotten any kind of traction in terms of being? Is that just for d- dementia in general, or is that specific to Alzheimer's? Because you guys so, have published that. You know, based ago. on the database that we use, which is the ADNI database, it's a very complete database of patients that have they have plasma, they have CSF, they have cognitive testing, they have imaging. So these are people that started being tracked, I don't know, twenty years ago or whatever, and they've followed them. And some people have converted into Alzheimer's disease, and some people have not. So that's a database that we used. Um, to look at levels of amylin, right? And what we found was that um, amylin was only low in MCI patients. So MCI is mild cognitive impairment, which is this sort of like overlapping clinical definition of like cognitive impairment, but it's not quite severe enough to call it Alzheimer's, right? But it's a lot of the people convert that are in the mild cognitive impairment um, segment. Um, so what we found was that mild cognitive impairment patients and Alzheimer's disease patients both showed low levels of plasma amylin, but normal controls as well as patients that had another type of dementia, so frontotemporal dementia or another type, did not show these low levels. Now it's you know it's an it's an association, um, so that doesn't mean causation, but it does match um, specific to Alzheimer's disease. So amylin is kind of interesting, though, because it has, I guess, there are receptors in the hippocampus. It's associated with plasticity. And you guys are building kind of a, a 
big and important story around this. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm trying. <laughs> Are we all supposed to talk here? <laughs> Hang on. You, you start the first, and then I can add up. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, so... Amon is very interesting because it's an amyloid, and so there's there's a story, there's a story for on both sides of the equation, right? So there's there's a there's a trail of work that shows that um, amyloid beta, so the toxic effects of amyloid beta may be mediated through the amyloid receptor, and there's you know that the story that we have that you know amyloid may you know may be beneficial. Right at a level of pathology or at a level of learning and memory, there's work that shows that you know that amyloid beta will signal through the amyloid receptor to regulate long-term potentiation. So there's definitely a, a direct link between the amyloid receptor and amyloid or whatever it is. They're both amyloids, right? They're both the same type of protein. Um, what we're using is. Um, Pramlotide, which is a, it's a drug and it's a recombinant form. It's based on rat amylin that does not aggregate. So structurally is different. It doesn't stick together in a sense. How that, how that relates to the therapeutic potential versus the toxic potential that others have shown is, is an interesting aspect to study. Um, you know, and I go back to what I was saying before in, in the meeting, whether it's, so like a loss of native function versus a gain of toxic function of the aggregation or whatever intermediates, um, we don't know. I, you know, I think that perhaps what we're doing with Amlin is gaining loss of, you know, reestablishing normal function. So is it the same thing when you Amlin. use an analog mm-hmm. of Amlin? Is that the same thing as using the... I mean, so, so you can imagine... So we have human amylins. So, right, so you could imagine that some, like, amyloid right. is this aggregate that binds to these receptors, but yet somehow we think is interfering with the native response, potentially. And is the idea that, that, that this analog is sort of competing that out? Because this, I, this, this sense of, like, whether it's toxic versus non-toxic, but it's hitting the same receptor, I mean, it's... Kind of complicated, but how do you how do you imagine that playing so out? The, the field of amyloid and Alzheimer's is, is kind of complicated because it keeps changing. <laughs> it used to be that it was so amyloid amyloid beta is cleaved and produced from APP, and before it aggregates, it sits in different structural, um, you know, I don't know different environments, right? So it goes from an oligomer and then it, it turns into a tetramer or whatever and then a fibril and then it makes a plaque. And so initially in Alzheimer's disease people thought it was a, the plaque that was toxic. But then, I, you know, as I was saying during my talk, the plaques in mice didn't do anything. So they thought that the plaque was going to kill cells and mm-hmm. cause Alzheimer's, but then they made the mice and it didn't they didn't really have that much cognitive impairment, nor did they have neurodegeneration. So then the the hypothesis sort of shifted to these intermediates, this kind of like soluble intermediates that are toxic. But in reality, so that, yes. I, that toxic, that word toxic, the fact that it impinges on a cognitive behavioral measure, yeah, negatively, is that the same? How do we know that these things are not neuroactive at a level of the circuit, for example? Well, we have, or, you know, we have we have a ton of APP in our brains, 
right? So we have a, a tons. So obviously, if if that is so prevalent in a brain, there's got to be a function, a native function, but not the. Unfortunately, I think in our field, people have focused on amyloid beta as a pathological entity and have ignored the native function that this protein has, right? And and so I think that it is, you know, there's data that shows that it is important in synaptic facilitation and all of this stuff. At the level of the circuit, the hippocampus, you know, like, I, I don't know, but there's a, there's a whole piece of information that we're missing because we haven't studied the native role of amyloid beta. We've only focused on the pathology, mm-hmm. right? And Why so is no one doing that? Maybe that means that we don't know the answer to the question she asked a little while ago, which is if we imagine an amyloid receptor, and then you just ask, what? We don't know how amyloid beta works. So what is the effect? How so it signals. No, no, so I, for I, example, I, if, if amylin is an agonist, and mm-hmm. an amyloid receptor, mm-hmm. is amyloid an agonist or an antagonist? Right. So because we of don't the, know. the receptor we are talking about right. here is identified as amyloid receptor. Actually, that's group of receptor, not a single yeah. receptor. It's a group so of it receptor. Is, exactly. It's, it's, it's a, not very well uh, uh, characterized even right. for even for, for amyloid. Even for amyloid. <laughs> so there's still research ongoing. What right. is the real amyloid receptor? Especially, you know, deep right. brain region, the right. hypothalamus or hippocampal neuron so, like that. So, in that sense, it's clear that amyloid, and then also, you know, people show that amyloid receptor binding and they induce uroprotective pathway, right. whether it's, there's an amyloid or not. So, people believe that amyloid has, about, you know, in addition to uh, the metabolic regulator mm-hmm. impact, it also has a uroprotective impact too, like insulin or other hormone now people are finding out. For, for amyloid beta peptide, I'm not sure anybody showed that a single, like, you know, non-fibrillar, non-oligomic, that's like, you know, right. nature, nature from the amyloid pepa, uh, uh, peptide actually can bind to the receptor. Right. But people are now showing and then they're suggesting is that once it uh, oligomerized mm-hmm. or like make a fibril, then it can activate receptor. The receptor. But, but I think, I think nobody showed convincingly that actually it binds the receptor specific manner and then induce the signal like agonist, and then the kill the cell. I think nobody knows about it. People what know that paper, actually that's a couple of a group, they showed that A-beta can uh, cause your toxicity through the uh, amino receptor mm-hmm. using the experiment like you know blocking the receptor with mm-hmm. some antagonist or some like you know knockdown. So I think for that matter, for biochemistry and how they interact, whether it's like antagonism or agonism like that, I think that's very unclear. Yeah, and, and the fact that it, I mean, amyloid signals through the calcitonin receptor, which is mm-hmm, widely yeah. expressed, and it has this, um, this two sort of like, um, receptor modulating proteins that, you know, the calcitonin receptor can bind this receptor modulating proteins, and there's like three types, right? One, two, and three. And depending on the conformation, it, it could be, we know very little about amyloid, how it signals, never mind how amyloid beta signals through the amyloid receptor, but amyloid can signal when calcitonin receptor is bound to two subtypes of these modulating proteins, so not one. And, and how then that translates into what signal it causes, that is up for grabs as well. So that's hopefully what we're going to be able to get money to do. <laughs> right, and you know, also, knock you know, out the specific subtypes and do all of this really mechanistic right, work also, to try yeah, to understand. At the same time, you know, I, I want to, like, you know, uh, I, I let avoid that, like, focusing on amyloid impact or, like, anti-amyloid impact or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because if that's the case, that's the you know, mechanism of the amyloid, then, you know, uh, anti-amyloid uh, clinical trial, 
uh, people try using right. antibody kind of that it should work. Right. But it's not working. So no. I think amyloid or some other, other, like insulin therapy and other thing, they all talking about amyloid because of that's what, you know, people what talking about on. it and they're asking about, especially the, you know, granted review panel. Right. They really want to see kind of thing. Right. But it should be something else, not just the amyloid. So even though, even if we don't know whether that's kind of indirect manner is regulating or direct manner, like, you know, competing each other. So I think it's better to, uh, uh, I think, uh, 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 go to the discussion, you know, like, you know, don't go to the frame of comfort better. Right. Just, you know, think about outside the box and then uh, checking out the thing. because no one's had a behavioral benefit yet. If they suddenly had major behavioral benefits, then they wouldn't need amyloid to read up, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So they don't see anything, so then they're looking for something that right. amyloids accept as gold standard. Right. I think... Um, but if amyloid isn't tightly connected to the behavioral readout, then it's not really gold standard anymore. That's, that's a that, good that's point. That's been for a long time. That is actually. a good point, yes. <laughs> that's a <the> point. <laughs> that is, yep, yep. We had lots of points. Yes. <laughs> so the other, you know, the other kind of interesting aspect is this antioxidant function, right, that we don't really know. I mean, you know, all I did was do a series of readouts and we're, you know, we're seeing that treatment with pramlatide reduces oxidative stress markers, it seems to improve mitochondrial health, you know, and then there's the, the whole discussion with, you know, work that George and Mark did and, you know, the Perry Smith lab did on amyloid and, and having this conformational Ability to, you know, by its. Didn't you publish that? Wasn't no, it? He paper? was never associated with that. Well, you wrote a bunch of. No, uh, he did not. You just think it was inevitably. But so that. that we're, we're there's articles. Structuring his yeah, I didn't say so that. There's articles that show that the, the aggregation, right? And actually, the, there's articles that show that for Amlin as well, that the, uh, the, conforma- the aggregation confirmation actually serves as an antioxidant. Um, it has an antioxidant component. In, you know, the oxid, the net oxidative stress levels when amylin kind of aggregates actually is lower, um, and that has to do with metals and you know. Same thing. Same yeah, thing. very similar work. And so then there's that whole other layer. Why does it aggregate versus not aggregate? What's the? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know it for amyloid beta even. That's what we're doing right now. But uh, there's a metal binding metal, slide on yeah. it, and it plays some role in right. redox control. Redox reactions. So it's all metal. Yeah, so that's beyond. But there's all of these interesting kind of cool relationships between these two, you know, these these two proteins, you know, that and, and the same controversy, the same con- controversy happens in the pancreas and the development of type 1 diabetes as it does for the brain, you know, what comes first, is this like a response to an injury or is this what causes a disease and, and you know, that's, I, I think it's kind of cool, so that's why I'm studying it. <laughs> How can we break out of that? That's, that seems like such a common what, in situation for us to get into where we don't know what's cause and what's effect. And then people just choose up sides. One group thinks this is the cause, and the other group mm. thinks it's. The, I, I, how do you how do you just resolve that? I, I think we resolve that by by doing hypothesis driven science as opposed to science that where there's an expectation of the result that you're supposed to get. Right. So because we are preconditioned to think that amyloid is 
you know, a toxic entity, if you treat cells with amyloid at one milligram per ml and you don't kill cells, you're like, oh, I must have not done the experiment right. Let me add, let me bring it up to five milligrams, right? And so we've, we haven't been really doing the due diligence in terms of, you know, non-biased, hypothesis-based experimentation. Do you, that, do you see that changing in the new generation? <sighs> yeah. I don't, you know, I think that I, it's not to say that amyloid is not involved in diseases clearly as if you have a mutation in APP, you develop Alzheimer's disease. It clearly has a role, you know, but in terms of really understanding the role, it's, it's hard because we've, we've sort of been preconditioned to believe a specific thing. I think that the studies that they're doing in, in populations, what is it in Colombia? They're doing, there's a, it's a, it's a, a patient population that has a very, aggressive mutation that shows up really early and so they're taking these patients and treating them really early on mm -hmm. so you know with base inhibitors or whatever they're using these studies are going to give us a lot of information about the role of a beta in the disease right and because a, a big issue that has come with the failures of all of these a beta trials is that the trials are started in patients and when you see AD in the clinic, that's probably started 15 years ago. And so by the time you, you see it to treat it, it's already too late. And so... I, I dis disagree. That's what that. they say. I, that right. is done as an explanation exactly. for why they failed. Because Alzheimer's disease is extremely heterogeneous right. in terms of cell death. And right. if you look at normal people, they are also... They have lots of plaques in the brain, right? Well, even when they don't have plaques. Right. Uh, if you look at a series of older people, you know, over 40 or 50... They've had lots of events that have also killed neurons. Mm -hmm. And there was no signal from any of those patients. There were mm -hmm. no subcategories. No one benefited. In the trial, yeah. you would have expected some people to benefit and some people not to benefit. benefit. But there was no signal. You know what seems odd to me about this is that normally we would expect basic scientists to figure out what's cause and effect before we ever go to a trial. But in this situation... We had some kind of notion about what was cause and what was effect, and we're actually doing the basic science in a clinical trial to find out whether mm -hmm. what, whose theory is right. Isn't that the wrong well, way around? Actually, I think it started with you know, who is right, you know, mm -hmm. because the field is so dominated mm -hmm. by that a beta kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. there's even uh, kind of very difficult to debate each other. They just go to one direction. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the reason why that things happen. Like, you know, Dr. Patty earlier, he repeatedly to insist that, you know, we should do more kind of, you know, uh, more basic science calculation basic science mechanism before moving to the clinical but trial. But, you know, people data. didn't listen to this. <laughs> not just correlations, but maybe an experiment that would allow one to... They didn't do tests. So, so there's a, the, the only correlation that you see is that there's plaques and there's patients with mutations that are associated with A-beta and Alzheimer's disease. But what happens in between is a big black hole. So people have decided that this line is a straight line, this causes this, and it really is not. Nobody's done the research to really identify whether this in the, you know, A-beta or the mutation or, you know, the overproduction of A-beta is actually causing the disease. It happens, and there's a disease, but in between, we don't know. And unfortunately, the field has really been dominated by the pathological entity being the disease, as opposed to really doing the non-biased clinical, you know, the non-biased basic mechanistic science about what does amyloid beta do? How is it important in the brain? 
What else does it do other than be associated with Alzheimer's? Is we've never asked any of these questions, really, in in the depth that we need to and, ask. And those people who question the amyloid, most of them are didn't write anything. Okay, right. the only people is Mark and I who ever wrote any right. question. But the other just said, well, it's a bystander. Right. It's clearly not a bystander either. It clearly right. plays a critical, critical role, role in the disease. But right. the clinical trials focused on clearing uh, right. a beta right. plaques from the brain. And so. And they did that beautifully. Yeah. So, that so one worked. of the great things about that was that that was a real experiment in which you could test causation. It just seems odd to me that that was done in a clinical trial on humans instead of in some kind of. Oh, it's been done setting. in laboratory yeah. animals. Right. But as you. I sent you that thing, didn't I? The one where I was interviewed in the London Times. And which I said it's very similar to testing respiratory distress with putting plastic bags over mouse's heads mm-hmm. and then removing them. And of course they get better. Of course they get better. Because <laughs> it has nothing to right. do with the biology. Plaques in a mice have no more relevance than plastic bags. So one thing about amyloid in mice is that it doesn't aggregate. So a mouse can never get plaques. So you're introducing human plaques in a mouse brain. And of course if you have lots of them, that's going to mess up. The mouse. Actually, so the experiment couldn't and so then you be remove done it in the laboratory. It had to be done. It clinic. could have been done if people had used it in, uh, well, we're hoping in the disease in a dish uh-huh. to mm-hmm. some degree. Yeah. And it also could have been done if it had been done in aged dogs or primates. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it was never done in that right. way. I thought that the heterogeneity of the populations that were done, uh, that were used in the clinical trial, were, it was so heterogeneous that in order to get an effect... They just didn't really see it, and that's why I think like some waited to like phase one, um, but then failed in phase two, or some made it to phase two and failed in phase three. Um, so maybe in our in the future design of clinical trials, we need to be better about stratifying populations of patients based on genetic background as well as potential uh, state of disease, like mild and cognitive impairment right before full-blown AD. Well, those trials are ongoing. The Columbia mm-hmm. one, yeah. all the people those are, are resulting from presenile in mm-hmm. one mutation, right. a specific one, so they would be much less heterogeneous. Right. And the other one, there's a very large trial that's uh, being run by uh, Brigham Women's Hospital, and that's called the A4 trial. It's pre-symptomatic people mm-hmm. that are being vaccinated. Right. I think that's more risky than the prior test of people getting worse because if the amyloid is having a biologically positive effect, that's when it's initially, probably having, right. initially would have the positive effect, not after right. the onset of the What's disease. it mean getting vaccinated? They're getting, they're, they're so that they, vaccinated. antibodies so that they break down... So they're they're given a little bit of amyloid to get them to make no 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 antibody antibody they're actually getting injected anti-antibody they injected so they did uh, right the, they did the active vaccine and the active vaccine had to be stopped right right the first vaccine yeah. for mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease that happened uh, a long you know not a long time but what ten years ago now or more than ten years more because 15? of patient fatality yeah right. so these patients had like. Um, Which we also wrote about before it happened. Right. Um, so amyloid, amyloid actually serves a vascular purpose as well, right? The vascular sealing right. idea. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's right. So it could be, you know, so these patients had a lot of hemorrhage, right? Yeah. yeah. So Some people hemorrhage. have um, extensive amyloid deposits in the blood vessels. And, and when you places, take it off... 
the vessel just So the idea of that was to have them make antibodies to amyloid so that they... So that's a passive vaccine. That's the Mm -hmm. second one. So you're giving them... Yeah, so in the first one, they developed antibodies against ABIT. In the second one, you're just giving them the the antibody. Uh Right. So... The same general concept. If you can control the dose better, mm-hmm. you know, there. just two different versions yeah. of it, and then there's different versions whether they. But you can control the dose with a passive vaccine mm-hmm. better than you do in an active vaccine. In in an in active vaccine, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna develop an immune response, right? And that's not controllable. Some people have a big immune response. Some people have less, and so I guess the passive vaccine is more. And you're not going to develop any kind of immune response to the antibodies that are being injected because... I don't know. <laughs> no, they, that's some, They're banking some, on some yeah. immune response. Some side effect actually reported like right. a T-cell accumulation in the brain like that. But now they claim that, that the company and then other researchers working on that, they developed like a new burden of antibody right. avoid such an issue. So I believe that the current antibody now, they try, use the trial in the big company one. That's the antibody they claim that, you know, they kind of can avoid all the kind all of the potential issues. secondary immune-related stuff. Now they claim that it's much safer than the previous version like that, but it should be effective anyway. But, probably but you're not expecting it to actually help because... No. Because clearing the amyloid doesn't <laughs> well, actually help. simplistic version. I hope it does. I really hope, you know, you hope, you always hope that, you know, patients with Alzheimer's, you know, find a cure or there's something but because right now there's yeah. nothing but of course, absolutely. based on what we've seen in the last 30 years it, right. it's not looking so if it, if promising. it doesn't work what will we do try another way of clearing amyloid or give up on clearing amyloid I, I everyone's know. still trying to clear it's, amyloid and that's what but, frustrates me because yeah. companies have invested yeah. years and billions of dollars yeah. not billions billions and billions and, and failed yeah. and is, we still don't have a drug and it's Still, the main focus for yeah, most companies, and, pretty much and only focus. a lot of the major farm, big pharma companies who are pursuing this have now eliminated their neuro divisions because mm-hmm. billions of dollars equal right. they got rid of right. everything. Yeah, right. So, so they then they gave up on treating Alzheimer's up. disease altogether. What is right. what is the most compelling piece of evidence connecting amyloid to toxicity and death, cell death? Well, the first work was done by Bruce Yangner, in which he did that 25 to 35 peptide. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So the short form is the one that's yeah. the toxic one. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Is that what you're talking about? Well, could be. Okay. So did, this, this whole, I, well, I want to get back to that. It's more soluble and easier to work with mm-hmm. and less expensive to fabricate, especially in the early days of peptides. So Bruce Yangner and Neil Cal at Harvard, Beth Israel, I think at the time, yeah, they did some of that initial toxicity studies. And then after their paper, everybody did toxicity studies, mm-hmm. in which it was more ascribed to being 42 versus mm-hmm. 40. And so in, in, in terms of the progression of the disease, because there's this idea that it's a homeostatic mechanism at first, which may be beneficial. Is there No, there's any, actually no, no one who ever said that's us. Oh, yeah. well, okay. that's our world. That's broadly accepted. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea that um, as, the, as the pathology progresses, I mean, is, is that when you start to see longer form? Or do these things just sort of, I mean, how do they parse? It's the same form throughout all of the disease, correct? Aren't there long? Yeah. Oh, this is just an artificial thing, this long form, short form in the literature. This is not something that occurs. No, there is a long form, short form. There's different long form versus short form in different locations. Like in blood vessels, it tends to be more 40. And in plaques, it tends to be more 42. 
But again, so what, what it all comes down to is that we still don't really understand what these forms of A-beta do and why they're important. We still don't have that basic, basic What's understanding. Gonna... Of we don't this... even know which cells produce the plaques or the vascular amyloid. Even that is not known. Right, so we know nothing about the basic mechanisms of this protein, which is quite abundant, at least APP is quite abundant in the brain. And so if, if we don't have like a really basic understanding of what this does, it's really, it's really hard to be able to regulate it properly or manipulate it properly in a way that's going to make sense for a disease. Well, can't we just do expression studies to find out who's expressing it? I mean, that's been done. They have, they, so they see them yeah. in neurons and yeah. astrocytes. Um, recently, I've seen something about microglia also. Well, all right. cells can express. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's, it's more ubiquitous than we had previously thought. That's the problem. Yeah. In the brain, when you stain with which pro cells contain the protein, it's neurons. It's neurons. And smooth muscle cells yeah. and choroid plexus. Yeah. plexus, to my knowledge, has never been reported. Never. It's been seen many times. Oh, never seen. Been I saw it in 1988. Ah. But no one reported it. Even though people do cerebral spinal fluid studies, mm -hmm. which is likely the sort of Off the, and the most data. interesting clinical study remaining is this Colombian. Yeah, I think that's because uh, the results may be different for genetically caused yeah. Alzheimer's disease. Could be different since they have a defect. And I, I and I think that's something that we're coming to more of an agreement that genetic based Alzheimer's disease, and even, I think, even between APP mutations and PS1-2 mutations, the disease clinically and pathologically doesn't necessarily look the exact same, right? But I think we're sort of kind of maybe coming to an agreement, maybe, that age-related Alzheimer's disease is not necessarily the same thing as genetic Alzheimer's disease, right? And then within those genetic subtypes, they may be slightly different as well. There's a lot, a lot we don't know. Well, in the Alzheimer's, the familiar Alzheimer's disease, there's, I thought like AVP and presenilin account for like 1%. Of, well, it's 5%. Right? Well, it's 5% of total AD cases in the world, right? Right? Is 5%? It, I've never seen that. Maybe it's 99. Yeah. I think it's 1%. So it's, it's, a, yeah, it's 1%. Yeah. So it's 1% of the population of all of the Alzheimer's disease in the world is mutation-based, yet... You know, we're studying the mouse models that we have are only mutation-based, right? There's no nothing. We cannot study age-related Alzheimer's disease unless we study normal, it. In, and even if you put the normal protein right. in the rodents, they don't have They don't. Knowledge. They don't do. They don't. It doesn't activate. So you don't have plaques before we did the right. mutations, and there was nothing going on with it, like zero. So then, you know, I don't know. I thought that's what I was going to say. Back, the other part about the clinical trial, if you're all these trials, you can talk about the heterogeneity and you can talk about subgroups and all this. What are we promising to patients? Mm -hmm. Those were Aricept was able to be spotted in those kind of trials, and we don't mm -hmm. accept that Aricept is even as, as effective a, as a treatment. treatment. What are we selling for Alzheimer's disease? We're selling a cure. If Alzheimer's is up at the top in the amyloid cascade and you remove it, you, you should be able make to see in fact you don't better. need to have one thousand right. if you have to have one thousand mothers to spot the difference right. and your mother doing better, is that a is that a treatment you'd want to give to your mother? Especially a treatment that has a risk. Aricept has very, very mild risk, has gastrointestinal mm -hmm. issues, they're uh -huh. usually not life threatening. The amyloid vaccine is life threatening. 
But then there's the question, if you're removing plaques after diagnosis, is it already too late? You know, that's, like, yeah, but that are is, you going to, are you be, are you just trying to remove it when the cells themselves are already dying? But they aren't dead. Right. But then if we're focusing on clearance, there's always that possibility that we're going to get differential effects based on how far along but you can do those that. cells are from, from so dying. So that is being done now, that A4 trial. That's what it's They're about. looking at MRI volume, hippocampal volume and stuff like that. I don't like, know. See, but that's, to me, that that is like a very kind of intuitive way to really be able to start making this link between treatment effectiveness and, and it's a advancement in, in disease, right? So I, we know that as the disease advances, we have hippocampal neurodegeneration. If the theory is that this didn't work because the hippocampus was degenerated and once you don't have any, if you don't have a hippocampus, you can't make memory better, right? Then a simple thing to do is when you're measuring a bit of load, which you can do very easily, you know, with PIP, all these compounds that bind it and, you know, radio label it, and then you can do a, a PET scan, then you can just you can take the volume, yeah. you know, since you're usually when you do PET, you do MRI, right? So take the MRI data and measure volume. Why is that not being done? Is that being done? I don't know. It may be being Right? Done. That would be, that would answer that be. question. So why why do you imagine though then that these animal models, which I guess you know they have their own issues because they're animal models, you have amyloid plaques, you don't have degeneration, yet you still see these cognitive effects that line up pretty well yeah. with clinical stuff. Well, because so, you're putting a whole bunch of junk in a mouse brain that wouldn't be there to begin with, right? But it should so be toxic junk that's going to kill the cells, but it, it doesn't. But it's kill not the cells. killing the cells. So and what that, is it? That what is, is that's exactly the paradox right that that's exactly the paradox that now now we have a 5x mouse which has five mutations and those have cell death but where have you ever seen a human being walking with five mutations in the brain you know so that doesn't exist and so we're making these crazy aggressive mouse models to try to answer it's a model right so finally you get cell death but these animals you know, develop pathology at the speed of light, right? And so what else What else do these mutations affect other than just overproducing amyloid beta? There's all of these other aspects that we're not asking either. We're just focused on killing cells because amyloid beta should do that. Well, obviously, these genes, I'm sure, not only have one role, right? So they, they may be impacting other aspects that we're not studying either. So that's where we are in the field, which is complicated <laughs> that's why I work on aging and prevention <laughs> yeah that's right also you know at the same time the, uh, one of the NIH primary focus too yeah uh, well so I hope so <laughs> <laughs> no that's they want to you know there's their special area play there you know, NIH now has an interest in the aging how we can study the understand the aging yeah, and how to apply the last time it is <laughs> right they want to like turn around from the A-beta and then go to the aging right and there was a metabolic Defects Met- metabolic yeah. defects are very yeah they're gaining a lot of so I, I believe that now kind of you know parent share now kind of focus on from the, the a beta anti a beta part to the moving and there towards is, the other part right and there is a lot of data you know before you see Alzheimer's disease you see this 
hypofunction in, in singular gyrus and, you know, in areas way before patients are diagnosed with disease. So there is a metabolic aspect to it that occurs earlier, right? Um, so that's, I think, where the exciting kind of new frontier lies. Cause so what's the nature of that? We don't know. So what, what it appears, <laughs> it appears as just a, a reduction of energyization in the brain. Yeah, and that. so that's where all, you know, part of like where the whole insulin signaling stuff comes from. There's a lot of, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction is shared across pretty much all neurodegenerative disorders, you know, Parkinson's, ALS, um, MS, they all have, but we don't, you know, there's a, we were talking earlier, there's a self a cell selectivity thing that we don't understand, right? Why, if these are, if these fundamental mechanisms are common in all of the disorders, what is it that causes, you know, um, oligodendrocytes to degenerate in MS and hippocampal neurons to degenerate in Alzheimer's disease and, you know, it, you know, uh, substantia nigra and Parkinson's? And that's, that's a key question that has not been answered in the field of degeneration in general, but there are these fundamental aspects that are seen across disorders. I had a question for you. If Since you're studying aging and prevention, do you think that as for society, instead of trying to treat after diagnosis, we should all be taking vitamin supplements or something uh, in that line of, not necessarily vitamins, but, you know, yeah. something that Eat will keep well. our brains well, healthy. You know, brain healthy. Here we <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> blueberries. So we all you eat blueberries, well. you'll be good. Um, you know, there there is epidemiological data that shows that, you know, people that live in Mediterranean countries and they follow Mediterranean diet, high vegetables and, you know, antioxidants and phytochemicals tend to be protected, right? This is an association. Um, and the reality is that, anti, you know, this is this goes into a whole other field. So a, a lot, you know, people here is like, all right, what pill can I take? You know, can I take vitamin E? Can I take omega-3? Can I take this? Can I take that? Right? The reality is that when you look at a fruit or a vegetable, it's got a lot more than just one antioxidant. It's got all of these really complex components um, that are produced in these plants to protect the plants from sun radiation and from all sorts of insults and so it might be just it's the complexity rather than popping a pill so what are you going to take if you take really high doses of vitamin c and vitamin e that can be toxic as well so what turns out we're supposed to eat artichoke hearts or something like that and if it was for sure right then it'd be no it'd be an easy sell people would eat artichoke hearts they don't want to get Alzheimer's disease 20 years from now yes but you can't it doesn't work that way yeah, you yes. can't really say that, right? right? You can't really say blueberries. Right. So there's right. say blueberries, but well, blueberries, blueberries do are really great stuff in the brain. They make you grow new neurons, right, George? <laughs> he was he was in my PhD thesis. <laughs> I asked you what was the difference between blueberries and cyanide. Yeah. Well, and Jim Joseph was ready to throttle me. <laughs> they both make you turn blue. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm just curious about this field. I don't really understand this field of senescence, and I wish I did. What is the prevailing model of how yes. we discuss senescence? 
at NIA, how is this being discussed as a general sense? Because there's normal aging, then there's, you know, all these, well, all these homeostatic things are happening. We have cancers. We have, you know, I don't, right. how do you even begin to understand the trajectory of benign aging? If that's what the goal even is. Enlighten me. Yeah, I wish. Educate me. Um, no, I, you know, there's, there's different theories of aging. You know, there's neuroendocrinological theories of aging, right? Where you're, you know, your hormone, your hormone release and hormone signaling goes down and then everything follows after that. There's oxidative stress, you know, free radical biology, the free radical theory of aging. That's the accumulation of this um, free radical insults through your lifespan plus the loss of endogenous antioxidant systems, right? So you're getting old, your endogenous antioxidant systems, what I was talking about, these enzymes, glutathione and catalase that break down um, metabolism produced or energy produced uh, free radicals are they they're kind of like not so good anymore and then on top of it you've accumulated all this damage and that causes aging right there is you know genetic sort of you know there's like the mTOR um, signaling pathway and so there's a lot there's a telomerase shortening in in cells that divide right so there's a lot of theories and I'm not sure that there is a prevailing theory of aging, and that's part part of the problem, right? It's probably cell specific, and um, yeah. So, yeah. and and part of part of the issue, I think, is that aging itself has, you know, until now has not really been a huge issue because we died a lot younger, right? So before menopausal related problems were not an issue because women died, you know, a hundred years ago, they died right around menopause. So that wasn't, now we live half of our lives almost past menopause. And so all of these aspects are becoming more important now because there's more and more people that are, you know, being better managed for cardiovascular disease, for cancer, for which are age-related diseases as well. And so, you know, what the aging field sort of started as a kind of, soft, I think, in a sense, like a soft biology kind of treatment, you know, and now it's, it's, it's being, you know, more focused as a something that it, you seriously have to study. And I hope, I hope that's the case, because it's obviously relevant and important. We're living a lot longer. So, so every week, it seems like I read in a tech, is it some Silicon Valley genius tycoon claims that Everybody's going to live to be 200 years old, and the first person to live to be 500 years old. So, uh, so, so what about that? I mean, where did they come up with those ideas? I think he's a little there, is, so. there is, a, there is, there is a, there is a, uploaded a, to a, the a piece of you know um, aging scientists that believe that you know if we find a specific trigger or whatever it is, I think it's the mTOR that you can extend. You know, that was discovered here, you know, the rapamycin. Really? Yeah, not at UTSA, but yeah, at the Health Science right. Center. So, that, you know, that if we find specific signals, we can extend life for, you know, I don't know. I'm, it's just I'm not a, sure I want to live that long, to be it, honest. Or is it, is it real? I don't, it's know. based on other animals, I think. like yeah, C. elegans. Yeah, C. elegans and Drosophila. And monkey. Monkey dog. They, uh, oh, they've done yeah. it with monkey now. Yeah, they they kind of they're still working on it, but they uh, published the 
some kind of you know follow up, and they they report that they are healthier than. Well, and, you, and that's when you get into the food restriction field, right? And exactly. you know, so a lot of that aspect of aging research has actually come the other way around. It's been intervention based, um, with like you know food restriction. So if you if you cut the amount of food that you feed an animal by I don't know twenty percent, that extends life. And then they've they've sort of tracked based on this intervention. They've tracked a series of signaling pathways that have been associated with these changes, right? So one is the mTOR, CERT one, right. and CERT twins, and all of these signaling cascades. But uh, like it's a complicated. It's sort of like intervention and then signaling, right? And then. So what do you think if we if we could if we could find that? So the Silicon Valley. Tycoon Genius's ride, and we do suddenly find a switch, and we could throw it. And now everybody lives to be 200 years old. Are they going to be? Are we going to get Alzheimer's? Are they going to all have Alzheimer's for the last half of their life, or is everything going to move uh, proportionally later? That's a great Mm -hmm. question. (laughs) I I think that that, then I think that's the current debate now going, like you know whether Alzheimer's is like. Kind of pathological aging or not? Right. Like that theory, people believe that Alzheimer's is a kind of uh, uh, accelerated aging process, uh, like White House. Yeah, like think that way, right? So you know that's going to prove that you know you put you like you said you can prove that kind of question. Right. Then that we'll have a whole. If they are right, then we can prevent. If they are wrong, you know Alzheimer's disease is not uh, like a, a natural aging process at all. Then we're going to still get Alzheimer's disease. Whether you, we, we extend it right, extend it right. So I think. Seems like the hard way to find out. Yeah, if, yes. we, we, if you take the course. <laughs> From all the data we now know, every age you have a higher risk of having Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. You don't go right. beyond and suddenly you've aged out of it. Right. Right. So you're not, none of us are. Uh, but then, you yet. know, but then there's a clear, on the other hand, there's a population that is exceptional on the other side, right? So you have the centenarian population that are like 120 years old running around and they're clear, crystal clear, cognitively, physically, they're a lot better than your normal 120 year old would be. And there's certainly uh, an, an area or like genetically based protection. Right, that we are. I think it's like the centenarian kind of research is. That's where you're selecting the people, as right? Opposed to a population. Exactly. Study. So now uh, the the reverse of that is looking at this population and looking at these guys and compare how they're different from your normal, you know, aged people to try to understand what the mechanisms are. Which I think that centenarian work is pretty cool, actually. Yeah, obviously we could go on forever. But <laughs> Truly, probably shouldn't because we're all aging. I know we're, yeah, all we're aging. getting old as we speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but thank you for joining us, um, Gemma Casadisus. No. Thank you, guys. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. 